1: Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders Podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. David, I
2: trust you are well. I'm well in lockdown, Sydney, Giles. You're you're lucky up there in the North Coast, but uh, not time to talk about that. We've got a, a pretty good guest today to talk about uh, the real stuff.
1: Absolutely. Daniel Westerman is the new chief executive of the Australian Energy Market Operator. He took over from Audrey Zeverman in May 17, Well, actually Zeverman left last December. And um, Daniel, who was formerly with National Grid in the UK, um, arrived here in May. Um, was hoping to do the rounds of um, the whole country I think that um, faced problems with um, the various COVID lockdowns um, so has been hunkered down in Melbourne over the last couple of weeks made a speech a couple of weeks ago and we caught up with him on Wednesday afternoon he is Daniel Westerman from the Australian Energy Market Operator. Daniel Westerman thank you very much for joining David and myself on Energy Insiders.
3: Thanks for having me Giles.
1: You gave your first speech two weeks ago at a CEDAR meeting in Melbourne, and one of the featured parts of the speech was the need for Australia to prepare to accommodate 100% instantaneous renewable energy. And I do emphasize instantaneous. You weren't talking about 100% renewable energy target or anything like that. But that got most of the headlines and a lot of reaction both negative and positive um, many people in the energy, energy energy industry described it as something of a game changer game changing thought or thinking um why was it so important for you to focus on that in your first speech since um inheriting the job in early may
3: Well, thanks for the question. And um, look, I think I tried to cover actually quite a lot of ground in the speech at uh, ZEDA a couple of weeks ago. Um, One of my core messages actually was that um, when you you sort of look at the way Australia is positioned in the energy transition and particularly with um, the experience that I've had over the last sort of seven years across the UK and the US, there's just a huge amount of opportunity in the energy transformation for all australians right um and you're right that there was uh you know uh, the perspective that um AEMO needs to be ready for periods of time moments in time when the grid um is you know does need to cope with 100 um penetration of renewables so instantaneous penetration as you point out um that that is uh it, you know it's a challenge for us um but there are uh, just huge opportunities in the energy transformation um in general I also tried to point out that um it's there are many aspects of that transition that uh, that we need to consider we've got to do the right thing by Australian consumers um that the energy transition is in um the, the interests of consumers we've got to act collaboratively together um and uh, and look around the world and and really learn um, and implement mm. things that mm. where solutions already exist
1: um, yeah, and the point about consumers is well made, and I'm sure we'll get into some of those other details. But just, just sort of resting with 100% instantaneous penetration just for a little bit longer. Um, this seems to be an acceleration of the thinking within Naimo A year ago, your predecessor Audrey Ziegman was talking about the need to accommodate up to 75% instantaneous renewables what has happened um i've got a couple of questions here what's happened in the meantime to sort of um, drive your thinking about um, being able to accommodate 100 percent instantaneous renewables what does that actually mean are you talking about the nem as a whole having 100 percent across all because it's basically a bunch of state grids or are you talking about individual states and i guess finally in a 3 pronged question what do we actually need to do to be able to actually accommodate that
3: yeah, um, well, what's changed really, Giles, is um, you're right. A, a year ago, uh, a little more than a year ago now, AMO published the Renewables Integration Study. And that was a seminal piece of engineering work that, um, uh, that forecast a, a number of different scenarios for the grid going forward under the, what were the scenarios under the, in the integrated system plan at the time. Um under the base case scenario, that had instantaneous penetration of up to seventy five percent of the time uh, in twenty twenty five and don't forget we're already operating um, at around about fifty percent so actually uh, the record at the moment is fifty seven percent of um, instantaneous of renewables at an instantaneous level so within a half hour period actually um, and really, what's changed since the um since the publication of that report is that Australia has really embraced the energy transition, um, and we're installing um, renewables at um, you know, 10 times the world average, twice the rate of our fastest, uh, our nearest sort of competitor in the, uh, in the installation of renewables, Germany. Um, and I think that's a, a really great thing for, uh, for Australia, you know, the embracement of the energy transition. Um, Why is it important for us, you know, uh, it's important for the system and market operator to be able to deal with um, the operating conditions at any moment in time. Um, That's what matters for us. Uh, It really does. And, you know, my aspiration um, for the grid to be able to deal with 100 percent instantaneous penetration. It's not a policy statement. You're absolutely right, it's not about, you know, that Australia should have 100% renewables all around the around the clock and around the year. That's not the case and, um, and you know, certainly um, we don't step into policy ambitions like that. But it is where the world is headed. Uh, it's where Australia is headed. Um, and what we see is that the market is moving faster than what we called our step change scenario. Um, And the step change in that report was forecast at 100% instantaneous penetration uh, by 2025. And as the market operator, we need to be able to facilitate that. And if we don't, you know, we're constraining off the cheapest electrons, free electrons, if you like, uh, for Australian consumers. And I don't think that's the right outcome for Australia.
1: Mm. Does that mean at that point in time, no fossil fuel generation happening at that particular point in time, um, at that 100% instantaneous, or, or is there some there going into storage or, or whatever, or how do you imagine, imagine that actually happening?
3: I think there are a range of different potential scenarios, but um, for us, the challenge is all about um, the shift from uh, you know rotating kit, the big um, uh, coal-fired, gas-fired generators that provide system services that I'm sure your listeners know well around inertia, um, system strength and others, and a shift to generation that's provided by through inverter-based generation, you know, solar and wind that is injected into the grid through these electronic inverters. And the challenge that gives us is that the, the, the system security mechanisms that we've had in the past um, just aren't there in the same way. And so you asked before, uh, what's the what's the pathway, what's the roadmap to get there? Um, the honest answer to that, Giles, is we don't know yet, and that's why we need to set it as an ambition because uh, we think it's the right thing for Australia to be able to um, to to have a grid that can cope with 100% instantaneous penetration of renewables. We think we've got the tools probably to get us to about. instantaneous penetration. Um, And I'm personally very optimistic about um, the work that the Energy Security Board has done. And and we're in the process of uh, submitting our recommendations to energy ministers now. Um, But above all of that, we actually need to put our best minds from right across the industry, the operator to, um, you know, to generators, to new connections. to to jointly work together to figure out how we do engineer grids that are capable of um, running at 100% instantaneous penetration of renewables.
2: So, Daniel, can can I ask about AEMO as an organisation? I think you have some background in National Grid and also at McKinsey for a while, as well as Ford Motor Company, and I suppose as the new captain or chief executive, the first thing you do is, is look at the uh, team you have there and, the, and its assets and its organisation. And, you know, when I speak around the industry, I hear comments that um, AEMO historically hasn't been like a Japanese train, if I can put it that way, in, in, in terms of its efficiency and everything. What, When you look at the strengths and weaknesses of AEMO, What's your initial assessment after this only brief time in in the seat?
3: Well, I think AMO is a very privileged organisation to be operating right at the heart of the energy industry in Australia. I think we play a really pivotal and critical role um, in facilitating uh, the energy transition, as well as obviously every day, uh, you know, enabling the energy markets that, uh, that keep the lights on and the gas flowing. Um, my reflection on um, having now spent a couple of months um, in the seed is that the priorities for AIM are quite clear for the, uh, for the period ahead. We've got a terrific um, you know, place in the, uh, in the industry, and we've got some amazing people with wonderful talents. Um, and uh, what we need to be clear about is what our priorities are for the future. In doing that, um, we've actually just launched our corporate plan um, in which we set out four simple priorities for us to focus on um, in the period ahead. And they are firstly operating today's systems and markets. And I think you'd be disappointed and I think your, re- your listeners would be disappointed if that wasn't our first priority. Um, the second is about navigating the energy future. And so that's really collaborating with our members and stakeholders to identify issues, identify solutions and work together to implement reform. The third is around engaging our stakeholders. So becoming a much more transparent, collaborative, um, stakeholder-oriented, open organization um, and uh, and really changing the way we work uh, externally. And the last one is about just evolving the way that we work and and being a more um, transparent, efficient, um, um, uh, well-run, well-oiled machine um, as an organization. And I think uh, focusing on those four priorities will mean that AEMO is the most effective we can be in that privileged role that we that we have right at the heart of the value the, of the energy industry.
2: And so, I've been reading the corporate plan for the past couple of days, as well as a few other things. And the, uh, having had a look at AEMO uh, as as an as an investment banking analyst and as an organisation. It seems to me that it's got a fairly weird grab bag of functions and, and, and you know, from one point of view, would be trying to do too many things and, uh, for too many people, like, uh, I don't know, uh, um, uh, transmission planning in Victoria and a lot of gas stuff that doesn't relate to electricity, running the West Australian system and... You've just taken on the corporate trustee role uh, for New South Wales Energy Road Transformation Map, Energy Transformation. Uh, on top of that, the budget's a bit constrained, the revenue model's uh, a, a, a bit strange, and there's all this IT stuff going on uh, at a huge rate of knots as well. I mean. I guess my question is, do you think that AEMO's functions are the appropriate ones? Uh, Shouldn't it just slim back a a bit what it does and focus on, you know, the first couple even of those priorities you mentioned?
3: Well, uh, so I'm really clear on what AMO's core functions are, right? So, you know, we run the system. um, We run the market that runs the system um, and we plan for the future. So just unpack those a little bit. Um, running the system is all about real time operations um uh, and you know again, this is the kind of core day to day job um operating the market, um, so we facilitate all of the trades and I guess that enables a whole bunch of uh, market investment um, into the energy system um over twenty billion dollars worth of trades every year um and planning for the future so all around uh, you know the integrated system plan um, generating the the uh, least cost and least regret pathway forward for Australian consumers. Um, you, there are um, a couple of other uh, functions that we do provide or rather services that we do provide for each of our stakeholders and members and, and provide support across the industry. Um, we've been providing um, support uh, that sort of bespoke support to jurisdictions, Uh, for a long time actually uh, from the Victorian role through to South Australia um, and you point out the new role that AMO services a subsidiary of AMO has taken on um, as the New South Wales um, consumer trustee or is is about to anyway Um, and these are I think important roles for us to help support our our members and, uh, and stakeholders it's important that we do them The right way um, that we always focused on our core obligations, which is running the system, running the market, um, and planning for the future. Um, And uh, I'm very confident that we're doing that.
2: So I'll just ask one more question and then hand back to Giles. And it's like one of his. It's a bit of a broad question that relates to the connection reform initiative that I've been reading about that AEMO and the CEC have been looking at and. I guess the way I see it as an external analyst is that there would be something like two gigawatts of wind and solar wanting to connect every year. Uh, that is to say with approvals plus another two gigawatts of behind the meter stuff every year at an absolute minimum. That's about, and that, um, so connection being able to get stuff connected efficiently is, a, is like obviously a very high priority for those people that uh, are in in the, in the queues somewhere along the line. And uh, from what I've been reading, they complain uh, that the GPS standards uh, change between when they're first approved and when the project is built. And so that's a big issue. Uh, and they also uh, complain that the dynamic modeling doesn't necessarily equate with what is observed in the real world. Um, and, uh, I just wondered, there's probably more, but there's always lots of complaints, but I just wondered, can we actually, can AEMO connect, you know, say two gigawatts of wind and solar at utility scale or more every year for the next 10 years?
3: Yeah, look, I'm really pleased with the Connections Reform Initiative, um, both in what it's achieving, but also in how it's going about it. Um, in terms of what it's achieving, um, it's obviously a collaborative effort across the industry, being led by both FAMO and the um, Clean Energy Council, as you say, um, that brings people together to identify, um, you know, roadblocks in the current connections process and work together to identify solutions. Um, it's early days in that um connections reform initiative process but um but still some good early wins um have been achieved so i think i mentioned at CEDA that um we've connected through amo 121 new wind and solar projects over the past four years 32 of those were in 2020 which was um 3300 megawatts or nearly six percent of the NEM generation capacity. and so there is um, some some good momentum and good um, you know good output of the connections reform initiative. but like I said it is early days and I think um, uh, we, there is there are many many more ideas and improvements to make in that process. but if I say for a moment, um, I'm also equally pleased with how we're going about it. like I said, I've worked across the UK and the US. I built a large renewables business um, of about a gigawatt in scale uh, across the US um, and operated um, leading a large part of the electricity transmission business um, in the UK. And I've not seen such a reform initiative where um, the the um, the system operator comes together with such a um, an influential set of people to drive change in the industry in such a collaborative way. Uh, so I'm very optimistic about what it can achieve and what we can achieve in improving the connections process, because of the way we're going about it. And I might just say uh, we've got you know 50 gigawatts of renewables in the pipeline, um, you know, in, in terms of wanting to connect into the NEM. Um, it's a big job to connect all of those, but everything that we can do to improve the connections process. Um, improves outcomes for Australians you know I can't control uh, policy or um, you know or the cost of debt but what I can affect is the risk premium that people associate with um, connecting in the connections process and I want Australia to be the best place to connect a a new generation asset in the world and I think that's the aspiration that we should all have Mm
1: Daniel, you mentioned before the um Energy Security Board process, the market reforms are gonna to go towards the state ministers, and you mentioned your own recommendations. Can you give any insight into what you are focusing on there? Um there's I guess that the, the main focus of intention has been about the physical retailer um reliability obligation. Um do you have any thoughts on that?
3: Uh, So the ESB has now submitted our recommendations to ministers, and unfortunately now that leaves them in cabinet in confidence, so I can't talk about what's in there. I guess the thing that I would say is that um, I was pleased to be part of a process where we really listened to industry. There was a lot of consultation that came back from um, the consultation paper that was published around about Easter time, Um, and we really listened to that, we really took that on. Uh, And I'm really optimistic about the package of reform that we've uh, proposed to ministers and look forward to the decisions that come out.
1: The other interesting thing that's um, happening, and I think there might be some announcement later on this week, is the uh, next version of the integrated system plan. Now, I think what we're going to hear later on this week, or perhaps it's next week, is going to be about the scenarios um, that make up the next integrated system, the basis of the next integrated system plan. This is actually quite important. You mentioned before about the step change scenario, which I think sort of mapped out a 20-year blueprint to about 90 or 90 something percent renewables by 2040. I think there are another couple of scenarios um, upcoming. Um, which could be um, export superpower, which is talking about an even more rapid transformation to renewables. Um, Can you give us any insight into those at all and the importance of those? And also the importance of the central scenario, because um, one of the, um, um, I've heard from some people in the industry that they're also interested in that because it's the central scenario which forms the basis of all of their financing deals and proposals when they're trying to get um, projects up and running.
3: Yeah, so the inputs assumptions and scenarios report uh, will be published on friday and uh, you know i'd commend that as a great read to all of your readers Um, as you say and as i've mentioned it does um, reflect the rapidly accelerating uh, trends in the australian energy transition um, and includes some things that um, have been possibly underrepresented in the past the electrification of transport for example EV driver, I'm pleased to see that there. Um, the opportunities in Australia for green hydrogen, um, you've you've mentioned. Uh, so I think there is a huge amount of great content in in the uh, report, and I definitely recommend folks read it and get to grips with the uh, the detail in there. But also. Um, Again, I'd come back to um, a key element of this is that this report—it's it's almost like it's not really an um, AIMO report. This was co-developed with stakeholders over an eight-month um, stakeholder engagement program, so it is really a co-created document that reflects the inputs and assumptions of um, of all of our stakeholders. Uh, tries to get the sensitivities right. So, you know, this is AIMO shifting from a um, you know pushing information out to being playing much more of a central coordination role in the industry.
1: Hmm. And, and I'm just wondering about that sort of the, the increase in the, the pace of trans, trans, uh, trans, transition. Sorry. Um, you mentioned before about, um, you know, about, about that um, getting to 100% even instantaneous. And you said, well, we don't know yet how to get there. That seems a little bit alarming, perhaps. seem um, so we've only got about four years to find out um, <laughs> how difficult do you imagine it might be. And, and what do we need to know? Or well, I guess it might be what Donald Rumsfeld might, might have called a known unknown.
3: Well, I think we've got the skeletons of a pathway to get there. Um, So in the last quarter, we hit our peak of uh, 57% instantaneous penetration of renewables. That that was in April, actually. Um, And through the um, reforms or rather the tools that were outlined in the Renewables Integration Study, as well as the um, Energy Security Board uh, reforms, We think we've got the pathway to get us to about 75% instantaneous penetration, but like I said before, 100% is a difficult engineering challenge, and we need to put our best minds on it right across the industry, and from academia to us to um, generators to uh, regulators, and figure out how we deliver an energy system that's capable of 100% instantaneous penetration of renewables, because at points in time we don't want to be constraining off the cheapest electrons for australians
2: and so that you've mentioned your stakeholders and if it was a a public uh company on the share market management have a duty to like maximize profits and and shareholders can work things out but uh AIMO is not like that it's got multiple stakeholders who have different objectives and I guess it's difficult for you as the Chief Executive to uh, make them all line up, and I've got two questions around a sort of unknown voice in, or hidden voice that doesn't is not very powerful individually is the behind the meter sector, which is nevertheless the fastest growing so uh when they get cut off you know unilaterally like what happened in South Australia, it does make me think about social license and stuff like that and you know, the minimum levels of generation and why they get cut off and in a, in a 100% renewable world would they need to since they are these free electorates? So that's one question and a sort of even more complex one but important to me is that all the states seem to have their own agendas. They have their own transmission connection rules, which is another thing that slows things down. And the original aim of the national electricity market was to uh, make it all work as one system for the benefit of everyone, does AIMO have a role in trying to bring the states back into the national fold and can, yeah, I'll leave it there.
3: I thought you said just one question, David. <laughs> um, look, I, I think um, to answer the first question, which is about uh, shareholders versus, um, like who is AIMO acting in the best interest of, I'm really clear that AEMO's role is to ensure safe, reliable and affordable energy today and to enable the energy transition for the benefit of all Australians. And it's that benefit of all Australians that's really important. Yes, we do have lots of different stakeholders and some of them have competing views and, and interests and ideas. Um, but we are mandated through the National Electricity Objective uh, to work in the interests of all Australians. And uh, you know, that is something that is at the front of my mind every day. Um, and I know that it's in the front of our, all of our people's mind. You touched on, on social license. And look, I think this is a really um, important and vexed issue. Um, we're seeing right now some of the first real major investments in transmission in you know, three decades. And you look at in the, um, the sort of uh, the West Murray, uh, Western Victorian transmission project area um and these transmission investments um have uh yeah any infrastructure project these days does have um uh community pushback and i think we're uh we're absolutely right as an industry to um to to seek to really understand those issues um and try and address them in the best way possible because there is a bit of an asymmetry between um, who's being asked to shoulder the kind of burden of these investments versus where the benefits accrue. Um, and so I think addressing this, um, the, the social license of energy infrastructure is, is a really important issue for us to grapple with over the period ahead. The behind the meter topic you, you mentioned as well. Um, and, and I think, again, this is a, it, it's an important topic, Um The uh, switching off or the constrain the constraintment of um, rooftop solar in South Australia uh, did receive quite a lot of attention, Um, and over time, well, I mean, actually, as part of the Energy Security Board work, uh, we we also do need to find the right um, sort of suite of tools that allow um, us to manage the system and the grid at the the bulk level first, leaving those, you know, the, the switching off or the, you know, the constrainment of, um, of consumers to an absolute last resort because no one wants to see those, uh, those things constrained.
2: And as far as bringing the states in, in, into, into into the fold and, and, you know, stopping the disintegration of the NIM, I mean, uh, you know, we've seen a rise in derogations and quite clearly, like if I take the New South Wales roadmap, which I thoroughly support, but it has big implications for Queensland and Victoria, which have been uh, electricity exporters in the past and may not be so in the future. Um, I just, uh, how should I think about that?
3: Well, I think the balance here is uh, between um, uh, the 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 best interests in for all Australians um, comes when um, when we are an integrated national electricity market, and that's why the national electricity market exists. Because you know electrons don't respect state boundaries, um, and um, and we all benefit from energy diversity and energy security across a greater portfolio of assets. Um, but overlaid on that is that Australia's, um, you know, r- regulatory or rather our energy policy regime um, gives states the sovereign right to legislate um, the energy policy that they see that they need. Um, and our role, I think, AMO at the heart of the energy industry is to be able to work productively with all of our stakeholders uh, for jurisdictions, for states, as well as federal to be able to um, achieve the benefits that uh, that they are looking for. Largely, we are all aligned. So we are all actually looking for the best outcome for consumers. Um, we just tackle it sometimes in different ways. Um, and so you know, I see a really positive role for AMO there to help to navigate transi- the transition by bringing people together. Mm-hmm.
2: Daniel,
1: I'm just wondering if we can talk maybe about some of the technologies that get um, you excited. Um, we're about to see some synchronous condensers um, switched on in South Australia, which may change the generation profile there quite significantly. I mean, Syncon's not exactly new technology, but I guess this might be a new application in, te- in terms of sort of balancing the grid while you've got a lot of wind and solar going. We're seeing batteries come into the market, um, you know, a huge pipeline of battery storage projects, a couple um, being completed, and just one just registered um, this week, the Victoria Big Battery, which will be the biggest in australia um and you've also talked um, a couple of times about um, using um sort of mothball gas generators you've talked about d sides in the uk about using spinning machines um as um, providing sort of synthetic or providing inertia i don't know whether that's a sort of the same thing as a syncon with something that already exists or not but um can you just sort of maybe talk about those technologies and anything else that kind of um g- gets you excited
3: Well, that's a broad list of topics. Anything that gets me excited, that's the whole industry. Um, (laughs) So let me talk about the the, the syncons. I mean, you're right that uh, four uh, synchronous condensers are being commissioned and tested in South Australia. Um, And this is a great outcome. Look, it's going to unlock um, about an additional 2,500 megawatts of uh, renewable energy to operate in South Australia. So a terrific outcome. And um, you're right that I've spoken previously about uh, the D-side plant in the UK, so it's uh, an old gas station in the north of Wales, where uh, because the National Grid Electricity System Operator um, commissioned a, a market for services, uh, it's not economic to, um, to you know to essentially generate energy at that plant but it is economic to spin the rotors and provide inertia back into the grid and and uh, and that is a you know essentially it's a very similar sort of technology to a synchronous condenser it's a big spinning piece of kit that um, helps keep voltage and frequency stable and Batteries um, are a key part of how the energy future will evolve for these types of uh, services here in uh, in Australia. Australia has led the way in utility scale uh, batteries. Uh, The Hornsdale plant was the uh, largest lithium ion battery in the world at the time. And the Victorian big battery that you mentioned is uh, twice the size. Batteries provide some of these essential system services um, you know, at a, an increasingly cost effective manner, but also provide um, additional services. So things like they can uh, store energy and arbitrage it, right? So they can store energy during the day and release it at night. And so they have a wide range of, um, of services that can be provided into the grid and will play a key role for us um, as, as we go forward.
1: I'm just wondering if you can just talk about the difference between working in Australia and in the UK and in the US. Um, you talked about your work with National Grid. Um, they perform a, a similar role to AEMO in the UK. You've um, developed um, a renewable energy portfolio in the US. Um, now you're back in Australia, um, where, you, where you actually come from. Um, there seems to be a fair degree of scepticism about new technologies. Um, your references to 100% renewables were sort of greeted by absolute nonsense by one senior minister. Can you sort of describe about some of the challenges? I mean, how different do you think it's going to be working in Australia um, than it has been in the UK?
3: Well, I think um, Australia is absolutely leading the way in the energy transition in many aspects. But as I've said, I think there are uh, opportunities for us to look around the world, learn and apply those to Australia. Um, Australia is a unique country. And we all know that. Um, and uh, in, many part, in many ways, that's, um, that's terrific. Uh, but it shouldn't stop us from kind of looking around the world, stealing what's good and just implementing it here. Uh, the D-side example is, a, is one example, but there are loads and loads of, um, uh, of others. Um, in the US, uh, the similarity is that the US have state-based energy policy in the same way that, um, uh, that Australia does. Um, but um, in my experience there, uh, no matter what the political persuasion of the particular state, uh, the energy transition is still continuing just with different sort of motivating factors. But the one thing that always um, motivates is price. Yeah, So investing in, um, in new technology that reduces um, price, that is the lowest cost technology for consumers, is the one thing that motivates everyone. Um, th- there's some um, terrific technology um, solutions that exist in the US. So I've been part of... Um, some virtual power plant, um, some really great virtual power plant work that aggregated thousands and thousands of um, home batteries to provide services into the grid. We're running trials here in uh, in Australia um, and proving the the same concepts, and I'm very optimistic about those. Uh, in, in, in in the UK, I think one of the big lessons is about um, connectivity. So uh, the UK. Recognising the low-cost opportunity for offshore wind, uh, they have a uh, an ambition to harness up to forty gigawatts of offshore wind in the North Sea. What's called the Saudi Arabia of wind, and it is uh, it's very low-cost energy for consumers. Recognising that they um, they need um, uh, connectivity to ensure the security of supply. And they're just finally building uh, another two interconnectors, which takes the level of interconnection between the island and mainland Europe uh, up to nine gigawatts of interconnection. And I think we can really learn from, from that about the benefits of an integrated network and the diversity of uh, energy supply across a great area.
2: So, uh, and I, I observe that National Grid's actually selling off its uh, a majority share of its gas transmission businesses and focusing more towards electricity. And I personally think that uh, Europe and the UK uh, are the world leaders, and the rest of the world will follow along. And I, uh, you know, you mentioned transmission; it's of course just putting social license in, in giving it an appropriate weight. It remains the case that the transmission development process in Australia is exceedingly slow uh, at the moment. And when I think about the increased volatility that is going to come as the share of uh, instantaneous share of renewables goes up uh, and down, uh, you know, things like electric vehicles and particularly hydrogen might imply we need even more transmission, say, to North Queensland and places where hydrogen hubs might be developed what can be done? I mean, are you satisfied with how things sit with the transmission development process at the moment and the actual speed of it?
3: the The development of Australia's transmission network can is really important for um, for consumers um, as we go through this transition. Um, it, from a both a low cost and a resilience perspective um you know low cost because uh, we want to enable the lowest cost generation at any point in time uh, but also from a resilience perspective right um we want to make sure that uh, when the wind is blowing in one part of the world and not in at one part of australia and not in others or the sun is shining and not um that consumers can still access um, low cost cheap reliable electricity Um, And I think having not built um, major transmission in in several decades, um, there's an opportunity for us to look at how we um, both approve those investments and and how we build it in everything from, I think, the regulatory framework um, in which decisions get made through to the social licence issues that we've talked about. Um, And this is something that I'm looking forward to working with all stakeholders on um, over the coming months and years ahead, actually.
2: Yeah, look, at just one quick question on that, and we're getting to the end of the time, I guess, Daniel, but, uh, you know, the, the ISP is focused on AC transmission, frankly, other than the Marinus link, but uh, it does seem to me that we're moving to a more DC world in general. Um, is there some thought that maybe DC links from something like North Queensland or something might, might also have a value going forward or... Uh,
3: well, the integrated system plan is developing the least cost and least regret um, transmission system for uh, Australians and considers all types of technology. Uh, I, get, I think what I'd say is uh, let's let that process um, play out over the coming couple of months. Um, and I'm very optimistic about the, uh, the outputs of the 2022 um, integrated system plan. The draft, uh, I think, gets published just before Christmas, and then um, a uh, the full version um, in the middle of next year, and that will be an, an update of obviously the previous integrated systems plan that has provided some really good and solid direction for the um, uh, for the network in the best interest of Australians.
2: Yeah, but I would say that least regrets before just handing back to Giles it starts from where we are and moves forward, whereas. You know, other plans start at where we want to be and move back to what we have to do. And sometimes this incremental approach, uh, you know, it's like endless renovations on a car before you finally decide you need a new one. But anyway, that's just my view. I'll hand back to Charles.
1: Um, Daniel, look, just two questions, uh, two quick questions to finish off with. And um, look, the first one might not be that quick, actually. Um, You're talking about this sort of rapid transition. Um, the responsibility for AEMO is also to keep the lights on. Um, and obviously that transition is quite difficult. Um, one system may work. Um, moving from one system to another may be the biggest challenge. What keeps you awake at night?
3: Oh, what keeps me awake at night? Um, <clears throat> That is a really good question. I think AMO has a lot of challenges. Um, I, I'm, I have a lot of confidence in our operational teams. So I think we saw through the Calide, um and the incident that followed um, uh, subsequent to the issue at Calide earlier this year, that um, our operational teams, not just within AMO, but right across the industry, um, can really, really come together and uh, and work in the best interest of Australians to get solutions in place, lights back on, all that sort of stuff. Um, so I think, uh, you, you know, I, I have a lot of confidence in that. Um, and I'm, I'm frankly really optimistic about uh, the role that AMO plays. Um, I think the, you know, the thing that... Um, occupies quite a lot of my attention is how just how we navigate the energy transition and get the the, the right technologies at the right time in in the best interest of Australians and I think it's a, a challenge that we frankly all grapple with um uh, you know policy through to um everyone in the industry so it's it, the, the energy industry is um is rife with these challenges and frankly that's one of the reasons I I love it so much is it's this complex kaleidoscope of economic technical and um uh and and political challenge i guess <laughs>
1: one final question um you did mention that you um i think david might have mentioned that you worked at ford in the past and you did mention that you're um, driving an ev um, what are you driving and why and um how optimistic are you about the um, electrification of transport
3: <laughs> thanks uh yeah i, I mean I've got a Tesla Model 3, uh, and I absolutely love it. Um, we've driven, we had a little BMW i3 um, in the UK for a while, um, but the, I, I drive the Tesla because it is a great car to drive, actually. Um, and, yeah, the fact that it's electric is uh, is obviously a, a great bonus. Um, I'm a car guy from uh, days of old. Um, and, yeah, I'm very optimistic about the um, uh, electrification of transport. Having um, Having an electric vehicle... The range anxiety problem, you know, people um, sort of worried about where they'll charge their car is um, it sort of dissipates um, pretty quickly once you're actually driving it, you plug it in at home and, you know, haven't had to go to a uh, charging station for a long time, actually. (laughs)
1: Once <laughs> well, you know, there's hundreds of millions of plugs around the place. Um, absolutely. Well, look, um, Daniel Westerman, um, thank you very much for joining um, the Energy Insiders podcast. I um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, may the lights stay on for you, and um, the transformation happen at the um, at the um, at the quickest pace possible. And um, we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Um, particularly once maybe we get more clarity from the ESB, we find out more about the ISP and some of the other major projects that um, that you have planned for.
3: I'd look forward to that, Giles. Thanks for having me today.
1: Thank you. And that was Daniel uh, Westerman from the Australian Energy Market Operator. David, look, um, very well controlled. Um, I don't think we managed to sort of eke anything unexpected out of him, although I was probably slightly slightly bemused by the fact that they don't know how to get to 100% renewables instantaneous um, within four years, and not that long to actually prepare for it. And you kind of clarified later on that that's really just like a choice of technologies or a choice of approach um, more than having to sort of invent something new. But what was, what was your major
2: take from it? Oh, look, my major take was that he's a new chief executive who uh, needs to earn internal uh, support uh, as much as anything else before and from stakeholder support, uh, before he embarks on whatever program he actually ends up deciding to do. Uh, as I tried to intimate on the pod, uh, in the interview, I, I personally have a view that uh, AEMO uh, is not necessarily fully resourced and, and basically it tries to be all things to all people and does too many functions and, and could do with a bit of pruning before it grows. And I think one group of stakeholders are just interested in how fast he can get new stuff connected. And it's been too slow, but they're working on that. And another group uh, wants more focus on behind the meter of the groups I talk to. And I suppose there would be a coal and coal, uh, a traditional group of people out there, including the federal government, that just want electricity and state governments, just want prices to be down and the lights to stay on.
1: Well, look, that's right. Um, I think the, um, I think it's going to be interesting to see what's in the ISP when that comes out on Friday. That's the new modeling and to what extent they're actually pushing the, um, you know, the export superpower, um, and those sort of things. And it's also going to be interesting to see what the ESB has come up with. And um, Daniel would not give anything away, although there is talk around the traps that, um, there's going to be some sort of physical retailer reliability, um, obligation, but not Possibly in the form that was presented at the time. So, look, we'll have to wait and see what that actually looks like. But um, yes, commercial and, or com- oh, what is it? Sort of um, in confidence or cabinet in confidence. So, um, nothing can be given away. But um, we you know- don't
2: know, Charles. That's the short answer. oh Thank you, David. We'll bring that, that
1: much more clearly than I did. Now, David, uh, what else have you got to mention? You came out with an interesting report um, um, more about where the prices are hitting in the wholesale market.
2: Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, uh, ITK, uh, that's my business, has updated its price forecasts. Uh, we don't claim any uh, better crystal ball than anyone else, but we try pretty hard to build the model up. Uh, we've lifted our price forecasts across the board, uh, both in the short term and to an extent in the longer term. But essentially, the fundamental proposition remains that the market's going to be in oversupply, at least out to 2030, uh, with with I don't know, say twenty gigabytes, twenty gigawatts plus of new supply, Mm -hmm. plus uh, behind the market. So we'll be basically in an oversupply situation, uh, marked by periods of coal generation uh, uh, falling out of the system, which which will tighten it up temporarily. So, yes. uh, What's
1: your prediction for share of renewables by twenty
2: thirty? Well, if all the projects that we Uh, project actually come uh, come to pass and that includes obviously not just the ones that have been announced so far but you know say another eight gigawatts or more out of the New South Wales program plus some others that are sure to come through in other states uh, then I could see us up around sixty percent if they were all built and operating at capacity, but uh, that you know there 's a lot of things it 's not just getting them approved it 's not just getting them built it 's not even just getting them connected it 's getting them all running running properly
1: absolutely yes well there 's a few interesting developments happening um, over the last um, couple of days. One, we've seen two new battery storage projects uh, registered, the Victoria Big Battery in um, New Geelong, which will be the biggest in the country, the Wandoon South Big Battery up in Queensland, which is the first big battery um, there. and might have come in handy if it was built close enough to, early enough to deal with the Calliard, um coal explosion drama in May, but it wasn't. Um, interestingly enough, David, um, those are the first two big batteries to be connected, along with Bulgana, just a couple of weeks ago um, for more than two years. And we've also got the synchronous condensers just about to come into the market in South Australia, which we mentioned in the interview um, with Daniel Westerman, um, which I think is just going to result in a significant increase in renewable generation in that state at least.
2: Yeah, so that's right. So uh, one of the problems in the system, why we have to have some thermal generational spinning reserve is because of these control uh, system requirements. You has to be an, enough inertia or enough ability to respond uh, when, when, when the... Um, uh sun or the wind suddenly goes away uh and putting the synchronous condensers in there or some other way of providing system strength uh should allow uh, is allowing more of that uh thermal generation to be backed off mm. um and and look i think batteries are going to be fulfilling a lot of that role going forward absolutely
1: Look, David, I think um, the interview with Daniel Westman from AEMO went for quite a while, so we might just wrap it up there. Um, Well, Charles,
2: I I do want to mention one other thing. I think, you know, uh, that we've got this focus in Australia at a federal level on gas, as you know, and Mm. I think the... When I was just had the opportunity this week as part of something I hope to be talking about next week, uh, to, to have a good look at the gas situation in Australia and compare what's happening around the world. And, uh, you know, one of the things about Daniel Westerman and reviewing him was that he was at National Grid. Well, National Grid is selling out of it most of its gas business. It's been divesting it for years. And it's announced it wants to focus a lot more on electricity and, and basically get rid of the rid of gas. And uh, we're seeing more and more European companies actually moving in the same way, as well as what we saw in Japan last week. Uh, so, you know, Australia, it's not just coal. Australia is going to find itself on the wrong end of the stick by focusing on gas, in my opinion, uh, when there are uh, better prizes out there with more long, better long term goals
1: might be something to worth talking about a bit more detail in the next podcast or two um david um thank you very much once again um thanks again to daniel Weston for aemo for joining us this week Um thanks to our sponsors of course um Evigen and pylon um for their ongoing um support and thanks to everyone out there listening to this podcast and for your kind feedback and um, we'll be talking again next week bye for now
0: Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant. Generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole, Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future.